All right, everybody, it's time to get this show on the road. But all I've got to say to you is three simple words. Yabba, dabba. Don't. And welcome to another fantabulous episode of the OST Party. This is a movie soundtrack podcast where movie fans and music fans get together and have a rockin' good time. You see what I did there? Uh, Stop it. L- listening to all your favorite movie soundtracks. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your host for this evening. Here with me tonight is my lovely and belligerent co-host, Libby Cudmore. Libby, I'm so sorry. <laughs> extra lovely, extra belligerent. Extra belligerent. Just plain extra tonight. <laughs> How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I cannot complain. Tonight's <laughs> episode is going to be a fun one and also a very strange one because the movie tonight, I mean, it's the live action adaptation of the Flintstones. So right away, you're coming in with certain expectations. And I'm here to tell you the soundtrack, it goes pretty much exactly where you think it's going to go but also it zigs and zags in some really weird directions sort of like the movie it, sort of yeah almost to the point where we have to ask who is this even for that's a good question and i don't think anybody ever knew because it was critically panned and they asked who is this for <laughs> yeah roger ebert specifically was was baffled by this movie yeah it is it's a baffling movie and a baffling soundtrack in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but not in a terrible way. No, and, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But first, uh, some old business from last episode on uh, Married to the Mob. We asked you what the best song on that soundtrack was. And with a staggering 82.5% of the vote, uh, New Order's Bizarre Love Triangle won that poll. Okay, we should have seen that coming. Yeah, we should. And we typically do have a rule about like the obvious songs get left off that uh, poll. But we didn't do that this time. And I don't know. I don't know why. We just love New Order too much. We knew it, and y'all knew it, so <laughs> good for us. But uh, in second place, with 8.5% of the vote, uh, Too Far Gone won second place. And uh, coming in, it's tied for third with 4.5% of the vote each. Debbie Harry's Liar Liar and Sinead O'Connor's Jump in the River, which I'm honestly kind of disappointed in you people. I, yeah, I'm a little disappointed that Sister Sinead didn't... Uh rank higher than that i'm surprised debbie harry didn't get as much love as i thought she deserved yeah well well they can't all be winners i guess i guess not you people you know you answered and we listened that's right so we're just gonna move straight on to <laughs> something even weirder than married to the mob if that's even possible. weirder see i feel like the energy of the show tonight is like we're just ready to talk about the flintstones damn it <laughs> Yep. No, no BSing around tonight. Let's just just jump straight into bedrock <laughs> and rock puns and so many rock puns. Oh, oh man. my god! I mean, I don't... so much product placement. I mean, I don't know about you, but right as as we record this, I'm drinking a, a, a frosty beverage out of a a McDonald's Flintstones glass. I need to know where you got it. Like, did you buy that just for this podcast? Because you've been wanting to do this one for a while. I have. Well, this is part of the reason why. I've had this glass uh, since 1994 when the movie came out. (laughs) Because my mom went and bought the whole set. So if I come down to your house, I can drink out of a Flintstones glass? Absolutely. 
Amazing. I can't wait. This will be after we go to Medieval Times. Of course. I'll give you the okay. choice of the Flintstones glass or the Batman Forever glass. Oh, man. Don't make me choose. <laughs> but, yeah, like, one of the big things about the Flintstones is that this was one of those movies in the mid-90s that was just marketed like crazy. Mm-hmm. Kind of like with uh, with Dick Tracy. We talked about that, how there was, like, you know, video games and action figures and toys and, like, fast food tie-ins and stuff. The Flintstones is really no different. And I, by all accounts, it really didn't work because this movie left basically no footprint. Yeah, to the point where a lot of the songs you can't find. Yeah. And you can find karaoke versions and in the style of, but there were several songs that if you don't own the soundtrack, they do not exist. There's not even like a memory of them. Yeah, like, you know, if you, if you wanted to go up to a karaoke night and sing your favorite stereo MC song, they've got you covered on that. Yeah. <laughs> now you know I'm going to do it. Oh, of, of course, I would expect <laughs> nothing less. Absolutely not. So after we go to Medieval Times, go to karaoke, we're going to do a couple of these songs, and we're going to go back and have beverages out of... Flintstones glasses. Hey, don't threaten me or, with a good time. Or Batman Forever glasses. We haven't decided yet. <laughs> you know what? There, there's enough for everybody. Come on down. Uh, but Libby, I guess my first question to you is, h- had you seen this movie before? I d- honestly don't remember. You know what? No, I know I had because I remember that scene where he comes in after bowling and Liz Taylor is mean to him. I distinctly <laughs> remember that. Oh, Yeah. And nothing else. Wow. So I know that I must have seen it. You just straight memory hold the whole movie then. Yeah. I just remember her being like, look at him, drunk as a skunkosaurus. I'm like, that's a dumb thing to say. (laughs) That's it. That's my entire memory. Liz Taylor looks great in this movie. This is her last theatrical role. She plays uh, Wilma's mother. Yeah. This is it. This was the, like, Liz Taylor. Liz Taylor thought... No more. No, uh, after this, I'm done. Yeah. So what about you? Where do you see it? <laughs> well, I remember distinctly seeing this in theaters because this was the summer. It was summer of 94. I had just broken my leg. I think I had, was in third grade. Ooh. And yeah, like I got the cast on. And then the next day, my mom was like, hey, let's take you and your friends to go see the Flintstones movie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, ha- I ha- like I don't remember the movie, but I have a distinct memory of like walking with crutches up the aisle back out of the theater. How did you break your leg? <sighs> you know how they tell you kids not to jump out of a swing when it's when you're really high up. I did. Joe, I did. I was not a smart child. <laughs> I'm arguably not a smart man. <laughs> you crack me up. Well, I'm glad it healed. I'm sorry you had to see the Flintstones. Well, you know. But then you you really pushed this one. So I think at what point did you acquire the soundtrack? Was this something you always had? Honestly, no. The, the soundtrack I bought specifically for this podcast. This is okay. This, but this is one that I've always wanted to do because, like, I think I alluded to this before. I, I'm just really fascinated by this kind of era of like '90s movie making where there's just so much marketing push behind it. And I remember uh-huh. the Flintstones being a particularly like big one to the point yeah, where, but... yeah, there's like McDonald's tie-ins and video games and action figures and like the movie's kind of an afterthought. Yeah. But as you said, I don't remember any of the the tie-ins. I don't remember any of it. Maybe, maybe my interest in doing this is all because I still like cling on to this Flintstones glass. 
I know this is your it's like a weird memory, like a Proustian your citizen cane. Like you're gonna drop it, whisper McDonald Cyan Flintstones class, and drop it. We're all gonna wonder what it means. Why did he say Wilma? We'll never know. <laughs> but yeah, like the movie is, I, I kind of do and don't like it, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, well, tell us about this movie. Okay, so this is. Uh, the big live-action adaptation of the Flintstones cartoon from the, the mid-60s. Everybody everybody knows the Flintstones. Even if you've never seen the Flintstones cartoon before, it's like one of those cartoons that just is ubiquitous. Like, you can't get away from it. I mean, either it's in the form of, like, Flintstones, uh, vitamins, or Fruity Pebble cereal, or if you just see them on TV or at a theme park or something, it's just out there. And... In the mid-90s, there was a big kind of push for, like, 60s nostalgia, and I think this was a big part of that. Yeah, because we had we had the film adaptation of The Addams Family yes. in 1991. We yes. had the Beverly Hillbillies, and those were both successful, uh, so much that there was a sequel to The Addams Family, Addams Family Values, which I would say is just as good. If not better. If not better. Yeah. <gasps> Jinx. <laughs> Jinx, yeah. And that's that's another – The Addams Family, that's another one which I would like to do sometime just because it's such a strange sort of Hollywood marketing sort of campaign that went along mm-hmm. with that movie. The soundtrack's coming up, maybe. That's right. But the soundtrack's kind of incidental, which arguably is kind of the same case as the Flintstones soundtrack. But – so the backstory behind the film. Have you ever heard of a Steven Spielberg movie called Always? No. There's a good reason, because Always is fucking terrible. Okay. But John Goodman is one of the stars of that movie. Came out in, I think, 88 or 89. Uh, as the story goes, during the first table read of that movie, Steven Spielberg sat down next to John Goodman, turned to him, and immediately announced to the entire room, one day you are going to play Fred Flintstone for me. I, If I were John Goodman, I would get up and walk out of the fucking room. That yeah. sounds insulting, because Fred Flintstone is an idiot. He's a big dumb bear <laughs> he's six foot three and maintains a consistent panda bear shape and you <laughs> he know wishes. what he's like four nine <laughs> and maintains a consistent cardboard box shape that is also true <laughs> but at, at around this time like spielberg bought the rights to the flintstones and like he was actively trying to make a flintstones movie for years why? He, I, I, Why? I don't because he was Steven Spielberg and I can do anything I fucking want. But like he was adamant about John Goodman playing Fred Flintstone. So eventually like he he apparently badgered him for years to do this. Until he eventually just gave up and said, Okay, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> and that is the entire reason for the existence of this movie. This makes me actually sad. Part two of that is oh, the, the director of the there's movie. There's more. There's, there's always more, Olivia. I, always, I tell you this. The director of this movie is Brian Levant, who we previously encountered on the soundtrack to uh, Jingle All the Way. <sighs> He's he, now my sworn enemy. Your mortal enemy. He apparently was like Hollywood's biggest Flintstones fan, and that alone won him the job to direct this movie. And okay. and okay. I, I will argue that is the one and only good thing about this movie. Yeah, I guess it's sort of like how Michael Chiklis was such a huge fan of Fantastic Four, and that's how he got cast in The Thing, as that, The Thing. 
Is that true? Yeah, he's a huge Fantastic Four fan. Wow, I never knew that. He was the only one in the cast who'd read the comics. He's, like, obsessed with it. <laughs> Somehow that doesn't surprise me. I know. I think he should play the thing all the time. Oh, yeah. Like, just walking down the street in his daily life. Well, no. I meant, like, in any other movie, like, they should keep bringing back Michael Chiklis as the thing. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, hey, Marvel. There's no reason not to. Just put him in a bunch of makeup. Yeah. We fully support this. Just... Little Shattered Shield crossover there. There you go. Synergy. Brand synergy. I love it. It's marketing, (laughs) baby. (laughs) Slapping on a drink cup. (laughs) Oh, boy. This is going to be a long night, folks. (laughs) So, so yeah, you you get Hollywood's biggest Flintstone superfan, and you get Steven Spielberg, and you get John Goodman. You put them together, and somehow it produced the Flintstones movie, which, if nothing else is amazing in like the production design and the look of how they like managed to recreate bedrock into a live action setting. See, I'm going to disagree because I find the production design migraine inducing and just it really? looks so <sighs> it looks like a McDonald's play place. <laughs> and like yes, they make like the houses and all of the little dumb things. And they they go all in. They really do. Like no half measures here. Yeah. It it doesn't ever look like someplace anyone would live. So everyone just looks like out like they don't look fit in their costumes. They don't look like they're really interacting with the props. It just ends up looking absurd. So you might say it's a live action cartoon. No. No, not even that. That's what they were going for. And it just, it looks like, it looks like a bunch of adults went to Party City and bought like (laughs) Yabba Dabba Caveman costumes. (laughs) You know, that's, the costumes are not my favorite thing. I'll give you that one. (laughs) It just, it looks, it, it looks like a, a cheesy theme park that is trying not to do any copyright infringement. I, you know, I, well, I'm not going to go down that road because if, if you get me talking about theme parks, we'll be here all day. Oh, I know I will. I think I cling to the production design because there's really there's absolutely nothing else worth watching in this movie. No, because, except for Halle Berry. I, okay, I'll take it back. There's exactly one thing to watch this movie for. And it's Halle Berry. <laughs> it's a smoking hot, very young Halle Berry. Halle Berry. But, Her costume fits nicely. She fills it out, yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. Well, and I think because she wasn't trying to fit into somebody else's costume, like you know, Wilma has to wear that white dress and has to be cut a certain way. It's true. And so you know, they were able to design something for right. her character, whose name is Sharon Stone, which I hate. Apparently, that was actually supposed to be played by Sharon Stone, and they I still hate make, it. They couldn't make it work. So they I still hate it. But they kept the name, which is insane. And also, that's really creepy because she plays this, like, she's trying to seduce Fred Flintstone and given Sharon Stone's association with Basic Instinct, like, that's an extremely adult joke. That's, well, you're right. And that's something that I want to talk about because this movie isn't really for kids, is it? No, and neither is the soundtrack. Because, Because I was thinking about the Flintstones the other day and I realized, like, the Flintstones isn't really for kids, is it? No. Because like so, it, it, the original Flintstones, it's almost literally a cartoon parody of the Honeymooners, which is not really a kid's show. 
Also, there is a very famous commercial of the Flintstones, like talking about the cigarettes they like. Yes, yes, I was gonna. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> so surprised I, they didn't work that in for more product placement. I know, like have have Fred smoking a cigar or something. <laughs> All right, we should yeah, probably get it. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the soundtrack real quick. Is there billboarding school? Oh, you better believe it. Hell yeah. You better believe there's billboarding school. Uh, the soundtrack debuted on the charts May 28th, 1994 at number 169. The top soundtrack that week was Tim McGraw's Not a Moment Too Soon. <laughs> I see you're growing. I'm going to raise it because the top soundtrack that week at number six was The Crow. No! <laughs> and no! Remember from that episode on The Crow, the next week it would hit number one. No, god damn it! The Flintstones soundtrack. The Flintstones lasted. has a lot in common with The Crow, or at least one thing in common with The Crow. <laughs> it's a crappy adaptation of a cartoon, yes. More than that. Okay. We'll get to it. We'll get there. So, the Flintstones album lasted eight weeks on the charts, peaked at number 73. Fell off the charts on July 23rd, my birthday, no less. Oh. <laughs> Happy birthday. This Thanks. album fell off the charts. <laughs> Thanks. When the Lion King soundtrack was number one. Well, yeah. And would continue to be number one for basically the entire summer. Yeah, basically until Titanic came out. Yeah. Like the summer of 94, the, the, the Billboard charts were one, The Lion King, and two, Forrest Gump. At what point did uh, Dumb and Dumber hit? I think that was in December. Like That was late That's, in I the year. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah. Because that, that was like the big hit of 95, I think. Yes. Um, this also has something... Two things in common with the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. I know. The synergy in this, in this uh, soundtrack is amazing. Mm-hmm. Final thought. The B-52's rendition of the Flintstones theme charted at number 33 on the charts, making it their second highest charting single after Love Shack. Oh, that's sad. I am so sorry to have to report this. Uh, so at the box office, the movie made surprisingly a lot of money, like $340 million was the number six highest grossing movie of the year behind The Lion King, Forrest Gump, True Lies, Speed, and The Mask. And it... <laughs> this, this has uh, thematically some elements of The Mask <laughs> on the soundtrack. It does. Yes, yes. See, everything's coming back together, and like the Nexus is the fucking Flintstones movie. Oh, man. Oh. So, okay, let's get into the Flintstones soundtrack. Um... Libby, do you, your first impressions of the Flintstones soundtrack. I could not believe that I didn't hate this. Ah, wow. I was fully prepared to hate this and was actually very surprised that it is a remarkably well-curated album. It, not everything is to my taste, but it is very, very thoughtfully put together. This... Like I'm looking at the CD here and like the track listing, you you really can see like a side A and side B because they're very different. Like the first mm-hmm. half of the album is very different from the second half. So, what are your impressions? I was really not feeling this one the first time I listened to it, and then I watched the movie and I, and I read up about it. And the second time, it kind of clicked with me more. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. I don't know that I love it, but I appreciate it. Yeah, and it it is sort of a weird little time capsule into a lot of other things that were happening in 1994 and things that we've talked about in other episodes, um, which marks it as sort of low-key fascinating because it's not something you would have guessed from the Flintstones movie. 
to have yeah. all these these elements at play. Because again, the audience theoretically is families, what PG, I think. Right. But the soundtrack has a lot of elements of like electro lounge and neo swing. It's got hip hop. It's got green jelly for I don't even know what is happening <laughs> there. And so I guess maybe the audience, gen, older Gen Xers taking their kids. That's the only thing I can think of because the soundtrack is so diverse, but it's not really a child friendly soundtrack unless your kid is the coolest kid on the block. Right. It's, and... it's almost like those like rockabye, like lullaby uh, renditions of Nine Inch Nails or whatever they have because you can't get over your own fucking self. It's the CD equivalent of go the fuck to sleep is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think the, the audience for this soundtrack and the film it are it, the audience is adults who already love the Flintstones. Because I think Were there enough to make it chart as high as it did. <laughs> Apparently. I mean, either the soundtrack was was um, propelled by like the B-52s who are actually in the movie, by the way. We'll talk about that in a yes, moment. Yes, they are. Or uh, the next to last track on the film is a Weird Al single, which has basically nothing, well, not, not nothing to do with the movie, but like it just, the, it just they just happened to exist at the same time, so they put it on the album. Mm-hmm. And I wonder- well, same with the, yeah. the Crash Test Dummies. That was a cut from their album from the previous year. That's true, yeah. So I wonder if- the Flintstones soundtrack was curated to be kind of a collection of kitsch songs about the Flintstones, like well, a, kind of a history lesson almost. Yes. Um, and we, we can, uh, we can get into that Yeah, because a lot, very few of these were actually written for the film. Right. And also just for our purposes at this point in the OST party sort of uh, history, like, 10 of the 12 songs on this sound on this album are either by artists we've covered before or are songs that we've covered before. Yeah. It's, so this I is know, we've, like we've a, reached a magical apex. Yeah, it really is. This is kind of like a greatest hits episode for us almost. <laughs> no, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> the B-sides and rarities album. <laughs> How about that? All right. Okay. So, so yeah, the Flintstones movie... The best way to describe it is it's basically a 90-minute episode of the Flintstones. Yeah, but on Cinemax. Oh, yeah. On Cinemax it's... with a Steven Spielberg budget. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take you through the movie real quick. Um, the film opens, and it's it's you know basically Fred and Barney going to work uh, in, in Fred's little pedal car, and they're singing songs. And the first song on the soundtrack, first song in the film, rather, is... Uh, Fred and Barney singing along to the BC-52's Bedrock Twitch. So let's let's go to a clip of that. things you could tell me was off of mesopotamia and i would believe you (laughs) really yeah like i would have just thought that this was one like they wrote 
for that album. And they're like, oh, shoot, we better throw it on the, the Flintstone soundtrack. Because this really does sound like a B-52 song. Um, uh, Fred Schneider and Katie Pearson just trade verses back and forth. Yeah. Which I love. And this was kind of that period in the B-52's history where the band was basically just those two, right? Like no, in there was, the there was three members. Only Cindy. Oh, right. So the, the, she, the drummer was still with him. I forget his yeah, name. Yeah, because she had stepped away for um, some family reasons. Okay. okay. Um, and then returned um, later on. Okay. But I, I appreciate this song. And most of the songs on the album are just like shamelessly nothing but like rock puns and references to cavemen and lava and prehistoric things. Yeah. Like they're, they're not even trying to hide it. And like I love the one line I think Kate Pearson says where she says, it's a funky planet. Don't you take it for granted. <sighs> Dad jokes aplenty. Yes. And like the B-52s can get away with that. Yes. But this is not one of their best songs. Um, however, um, you know, they were still, the B-52s were still a hot commodity because, um, their album, Good Stuff, it was their seventh album, uh, hit the charts uh, this year in 1994 and was nominated for Best Alternative Album at the Grammys. Do you know who it lost to? I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess Nine Inch Nails. It lost to Tom Waits for Bone Machine. <laughs> oh, God. You know what other band formed in 1994? Who's that? Smash Mouth. <laughs> How? How did I not see that coming? <laughs> they just, didn't have an album until 1997, but just hit me with a freight train already. Good lord! <laughs> but oh. yeah, the B52s were were still going strong, and uh, this is not their first time on the OST party. They were previously on the Earth Girls Are Easy soundtrack. Yeah, that's right. With Cosmic Thing. Cosmic Thing. I was trying to remember the song. Yeah, Cosmic yep. Thing, which is off of uh, Deadbeat Club, the album that preceded mm-hmm. Good Stuff. Uh, so the the first little bit of the movie is that Fred has apparently loaned Barney a large sum of money. Fred, by the way, you know, Fred is John Goodman. Barney is played by Rick Moranis. Which is really <laughs> challenging, my crush on Rick Moranis. Uh, once again, in his, both of them in their second appearance on the OST party. Yeah, Rick Moranis, remind me, where was he before? Streets of Fire. Shit, yes, that's right. And of course, John Goodman from uh, True Stories. Yes. But so is it is it the blonde hair that did it? I think so. And maybe just the dress that he's wearing. I get that it's like caveman tunic or whatever, but oh yeah. Hard to be attracted to him there. So the the first part of the movie, Fred has loaned Barney a large sum of money so that Barney and Betty, who is played by Rosie O'Donnell, yes, because fresh off of a league of their own, I believe. Yeah, yeah. She was having a moment. A, a very big moment, but Barney and Betty are trying to adopt, and Fred loans them the money to do so. And uh, their child, Bam Bam, is awful, just plain awful. I mean, he's he's what they say he was raised by mastodons, something like that, something like that. So he's a wild animal, basically. But the next song we get on the soundtrack is uh, in a, a montage of Barney and Betty trying to get to know Bam Bam and become their become his parents uh, the song Rock with the Caveman before my big audio dynamite <laughs> let's go to a clip 
formerly of The Clash, is the founder of Big Audio Dynamite, which is why this song sounds like The Clash, writing yeah. a song about cavemen. Of course. <laughs> um, but this one, it, a lot of them sample the Flintstones. Like, they sample clips, mm-hmm. mostly Yabba Dabba Doom. Of course. But this one is more of that big band neo-swing, specifically with the call and response um, and that we're getting in 1994. So I would not have guessed that that would have been part of the Flintstones movie, but it very much is. Yeah. And like this even predates uh, the mask, mm-hmm. which we remember when that episode, we talked about how like the brand set the orchestra was kind of, they were just before that, where that really blew up in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. And th- this even predates that. Yes, this actually has a very Brian Setzer feel. I can hear it. Like yeah. it's, it's very, it's very lightweight. It doesn't have uh, the sort of gritty underbelly that Royal Crown Review has, but it doesn't go all in the way that Big Bad Voodoo Daddy does. So it's it's skirting that edge, but um, but this one again was just a little. A little unexpected. Yeah, and like a lot of the songs on the soundtrack are very like surface level, like oh, haha, Flintstones caveman puns and jokes. And this one kind of does that, but it doesn't go all in on the jokes. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's a rockabilly song about cavemen. Yes, and this one uh, is actually from their album Higher Power. Oh, when did that come out? Nineteen ninety four. Okay, so it's it's, it's contemporary with the, the yes. Film then. Okay. That's yes. Cool. Uh, not all of them are, um, but this one. Uh, came out uh, earlier that year and then was included on the Flintstones soundtrack. So somebody went, as I said, and very carefully curated this album, pulling all sorts of different songs about cavemen rather than just asking a lot of these artists, like, do you have a song about cavemen? Like, can you write us one? Like, super lazy. Some of them are extremely right. lazy. But. Some of them, like, do reference the movie, and those are the obviously those are obviously the ones where they just came into the studio to do a, to cut a song for the movie. Yeah, but I was I was pleasantly surprised to find out that this was not one of them. Yeah, um, and it's also one of the ones that just doesn't exist on the internet. You can find like the the karaoke version of it if you want to sing along, but mm-hmm. the the big audio dynamite version it, it it's gone apparently. Yeah, I don't think Mick Jones is particularly psyched about this. Ah, uh, I don't know. He may how- just be like, let's not talk about it. <laughs> it's like they have the <laughs> memory hole that one, and let's move on. How about that? Yes. <laughs> So then Fred and Barney uh, go bowling one night with the the order, the, wa- the water buffalo. The fellas. The fellas, the boys. And uh, Richard Mull from Night Court is there <laughs> as, as a sure. gigantic caveman. And uh, Barney delivers this very moving speech about how, he, how Fred is his best friend and he would do anything for him. Since I was just a lad of 10, I've had the very bestest friend. He may be big, he may be loud, so you'll never lose him in a crowd. But for my friend, the special part is what's behind his ribs, his heart. (laughs) 
I owe my son to him, and now I stand before my peers and vow I'll pay him back someday, somehow. It's something about it made me tear up a little bit. Oh, that's really sweet. I just, I like that uh, Barney's worried that he's going to be a good dad. And it's like, Rick Moranis, you're a great daddy. But no, he is. He's actually like a, a real, that's why he left Hollywood was to be a dad. And that's amazing. Yeah, so. of course. But also he's hot. Yeah, why not? <laughs> One thing I want to know, note about the bowling scene, uh, the song that kind of punctuates this, did you recognize it? The bowling scene? I did not. It's it's the song. It's a song called "The Dog Pound Hop," and it is the theme song to uh, Ren and Stimpy. Okay. And I I remember going to the movies and seeing those and being excited because hey, that's the Ren and Stimpy theme. I don't know why it's here. Yeah, that. I don't know why they used it. Seems really out of place and weird because this isn't a Nickelodeon thing. That's yeah, that's true. So we oh that's that's odd. Please somebody tell us why that was. If you know, please write into us at ostpartypod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Uh, then that night, Fred comes home very late, very drunk from the bowling alley with his gigantic bowling trophy. And Elizabeth Taylor is there as his, his mother-in-law. And Yes, because Dino knocks him over. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay. Of your dinosaur pals, are you Team Dino or Team Yoshi? I'm very much Team Yoshi. Yeah, I think so, too. And again, uh, dinosaurs were having a moment. We had Mm -hmm. Jurassic Park, obviously. Uh, The Super Mario Brothers movie came out also in 93. But it was weird to see so much CGI here. When you look at the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, you know, the, the war models, and you look at the animatronic Yoshi. And maybe that's one of the things that really throws me off about a lot of the... um, the set design is they lean into really weird CGI. Yeah, like Dino was was famously like one of the first like CG characters in a big movie like this. Yeah, and, and that's not even like oh he looks wrong to the contemporary viewer. It's that he looked wrong even then. Yeah, and even when they like, there's the few scenes where they don't use CGI, and it's obviously like a Dino puppet. Even that looks weird and raw. Yeah, it, it, the CGI is just rubbery, all of it. But again, just like with Yoshi and Mario Brothers, that has to exist somewhere still, right? Like the the Dino puppet is probably in it's probably in Brian Levant's like personal Flintstones museum. Let's be honest. Probably. And it's probably like well, so much more like better preserved than the Yoshi uh, puppet. Alas, poor Yoshi. So I yeah I'm sure the CGI or the the fake Dino is out there living his best life somewhere and that's a shame. I hope so. <laughs> that's a shame. No, this Dino sucks. <laughs> he does kind of suck. Um, in the scene where Pearl is just berating Fred and Wilma, <laughs> I, I I caught her say to Wilma, "If you knew all the sacrifices your father made for you, lambs, oxen, your brother Jerry." <laughs> Because that's a very, very adult joke, which is hilarious. Which I thought that was funny. Is like the darkest thing about this movie is that joke. <laughs> I love it. I do too. Um, we also, uh, I have a note um, when they're bowling. He says, like, you think you could do it? And Fred is like, is the earth flat? It's like, oh no, Fred Flintstone <laughs> is a flat earth truther. 
Oh, right. Yeah. In that exact same scene, he like brags about the, how they kicked out the Neanderthals from the bowling league. Yeah. It's like, oh, he's, he's a flat earther and he's a racist. Great. <laughs> this will come into play later when, when Fred becomes the worst person in the world. Yes. <laughs> because in the very next scene, the next day at work, they're all tasked with taking a work aptitude test. And the yes. Test, sorry. And this is because... So Cliff Vandercave, played by Kyle Twin Peaks McLaughlin, has a scheme by which he and his secretary, Sharon Stone, the very beautiful Halle Berry, mm-hmm. uh, will embezzle money by using a useful idiot to help them to sign off on things. They'll take the money and he'll take the fall. A kid's movie, everybody. A kid's movie, everybody. But again, with the costumes, the thing, the weird thing that uh, Kyle MacLachlan is wearing throughout this film is like a giant leather onesie, basically. It's, it's like a ca- it's a caftan, I believe it's known as. Caftan. Okay, well, a yeah. giant leather caftan. But, but it's specifically like black leather, <laughs> and it he, he must have been miserable. Like he he he's clearly having the time of his life doing this stupid movie. He must have been miserable on the set. He must have been very warm, and his tie is like underneath it. Yeah. Like he wears a zebra striped tie. I hope he got paid well for this. I hope so. so. I hope he's happy. He, oh, I'm sure he's plenty happy. But so <laughs> the work with with the work aptitude test, uh, Barney is taking his and Fred's uh, giant slate, you know, scantrons up to the front. And he realizes that Fred's answers are all wrong. Yeah. So Fred is an idiot. I think we need to reestablish that Fred is an idiot. Yes. And like the scene of John Goodman like frantically like chiseling his answers into that is it's great. Great little is physical it? it's a great little bit of physical comedy. He's doing his best, <laughs> damn it. But uh to his number to, two chisel. Get it? Because it's like a number two pencil, but it's caveman tie, so it's a number two chisel. Get it? Get it? Do you get it? God damn it. Ha 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 ha. I know. I shouldn't be so mad. This is a kid's film. I shouldn't like be so angry, but I am. <laughs> but anyway, uh yeah. To pay back Fred for giving him the money to, to adopt Bam Bam, Barney switches their tests. And because of this, the employee with the highest score on the aptitude test turns out to be Fred. Because Barney's test scores were all correct. And Fred is now like the executive vice president of something or other at Slate Corporation. Yes. And the person who got the lowest test score was Barney. And by Barney, we mean Fred. Right. But also because of this, Fred's first job as an executive is to fire Barney for being an idiot, which is terrible. And Fred has yeah. to break this news to Barney at a party that Barney and, and Betty throw for Fred for his new job. Yes. And this is where we get our next track. Yes, because playing at this party is none other than Walk the Dinosaur, the original this time. Yes. By Was Not Was. Yes. Let's go to a clip. the stars. I gotta say, I really cannot pick a favorite between this and the George Clinton version from the Super Mario Brothers soundtrack. I'm gonna say the George Clinton version. Um, this one is, it's a little too breathy and a little too lost in the sort of staccato of the drum machine. 
I think I think George Clinton adds a certain swagger to it. See, while I agree, I think this one is just plain cleaner, and I think the George Clinton version is a little muddy. Okay. So. Agree to disagree. I I don't dislike either one, honestly. Is all but I'm saying. Obviously, we were gonna have uh, walk the dinosaur. Oh, you were not getting in. out of this film without hearing "Walk the Dinosaur." Yeah, it's just gonna happen. <laughs> um, and you know what? I I'm kind of okay with that. It's whimsical, and again, um, this song had had a brief resurgence in popularity thanks to the Super Mario Brothers movie. Of course, I'm gonna say it's because of the Super Mario Brothers movie, and not because of anything else. Because I want to give credit where credit is due. Not enough people love the Super Mario Brothers movie. And you know what? I'm going to say you're absolutely right. Yes. Well, I mean, now it's getting some love. Well, of course, by us. Right. Well, and by the Super Mario Brothers society oh, there. Yes, the, the SMB archive is doing great yes. work. Yes, and if you haven't seen the Morton Jenkel cut, it really is. It's I, spectacular. Uh, it's kind of it's such a neat thing that they did that. I still need to see that. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, so Fred has to break the news to Barney in front of everybody that Barney is fired. I know. It's God, a it's a heartbreaking it. scene. And Barney takes it in such stride because like they go back out and he just like brings him a beer in like a weird giant oversized stone beer bottle. Yep. And and, and, and of course what what is the beer? It's a rolling I, rock. I didn't even notice, but that makes me mad. <laughs> I paused the movie and I pointed at the screen. I said, It's a rolling rock. And Nikki looked at me like, Yeah, I know. Like you idiot. <laughs> Nikki puts up with so much. We're so I, sorry. I was having so much fun with this movie and I'm not even appalled. I'm not even ashamed. <laughs> you should be. Nah, I'm okay. <laughs> so then the, the the big scheme, Vandercave's big scheme emerges. He's proposing that they build like an automated assembly line for crushing up rocks that will first of all f- require that they fire a lot of workers all the workers all the workers and then second of all it's going to be a piece of shit so that he can embezzle all the money yes it's gonna break as soon as he leaves yes and then fred is going to be his patsy for this entire scheme because of course fred is a dum-dum and he'll sign anything you put in front of him uh then of course uh the rebels fall on hard times when barney gets fired so the rebels move in with the flintstones in order to embezzle the money they just straight up give all the money to fred and they give him a huge bonus, and he just goes out and blows it all immediately. Yep, like a and big idiot. Like a big, dumb idiot. And at this point, we get like the official uh, Meet the Flintstones song by the B-52s as like the montage of the Flintstones buying all this extravagant crap. Yes. And again, as we talk about the B-52s sort of having a moment, they had also done the theme to Rocco's Modern Life. That's right, yeah. At this, at this time. And so they were starting to become more embedded in sort of like the family-friendly consciousness, if you could call Rocco's Modern Life family-friendly. Again, we cannot reiterate enough how surreal and weird the 90s were. Right. And also at this time, I think not, not long before this, Kate Pearson showed up in an episode or two of The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Yep. So they kind of had a she history did. with all that. So it's it's weird that they you're like you said they they just embedded themselves in like children's culture in the nineties. Yeah. This weird uh, new wave band just suddenly they didn't turn exactly child friendly, but they were very present in children's entertainment. 
Right. So. I, I think it, it maybe just became acceptable for, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain that one. Yeah. That's I think, and me. I think it's just as Gen Xers aged and began settling down and having families, at least the sort of uh, older half of them, they brought their music with them. And they yeah. brought their icons with them. So. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, but I would be lying if I said that this version didn't absolutely kick. Oh, this it's fantastic. <laughs> so I wouldn't listen to it normally, but it's such a fun way to update the song. Yeah, and, and the fact that it charted so high as a radio single, I cannot imagine hearing this on the radio. Yeah, that's just like driving and hearing the... Flintstones theme like, like it's whimsical on this but sort of divorced from that I can't imagine like in between Whitney Houston and like Pearl Jam like oh next up it's the B-52s playing the Flintstones theme yeah no and that is just weird and silly to me but apparently like who might argue with the charts no. um, I'm not gonna love... yeah oh. no go on I, I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna be mad that it exists I appreciate that it exists it's just yeah it's so strange yeah, it's I can't explain it. I do love um uh Fred Schneider bleeding the like let's ride with the family down the street. <laughs> yeah, he Just really like sells it, it hard. And his weird Fred Schneider voice. Um but again, it brings this sort of big loungy sound to it. And obviously that's present in the original theme given its uh 1960s time frame. Yeah. But it really, really amps that up as we head into that, uh, the lounge revival and the neo swing revival. So, it's it's sort of contemporary in what we were listening to. Yeah, and like even as it's trying to sound retro, even as it is retro. So it's it's, you know, everything old is new again. And also, like, there's it's pretty shameless about it too. Like, there's no subtlety to like the 90s nostalgia for the 60s it's like as everything in the 90s screamed hey guys we're bringing the 60s back oh yes up to it yes. including fred schneider screaming the theme song to the flintstones <laughs> <laughs> not subtle about it at all no so yeah as, as fred gets settled into executive life uh he really starts flirting hard with his new secretary uh sharon stone aka halle berry or rather, yeah. she starts flirting with him, but he's yes. really into it. Well, yeah. Because who wouldn't be? Exactly. Yeah. And this is also where we meet um, a, a character that is surprisingly very important to the plot. His, his dictaphone, which is a bird voiced by Harvey Corman. <laughs> because why not? Sure. Let's do it. Like Harvey, Harvey Corbin is old. We need to give him another role before he dies. Let's make him the, this talking bird. And you know what? He's great. Okay, which is more embarrassing? Uh, him in the Star Wars Holiday Special where he pours a drink in his head? Or this? It's definitely him in the Star Wars Holiday Special as Space Julia Childs with six arms. I forgot about that. Oh, Christ. It's definitely name. that one. Yikes. No, his character in this as the bird is is fine. I I, I like because he's, he's but it's like, still embarrassing. He's, like... he's like the brain gremlin from Gremlins too. He's just so like well spoken and so condescending, and it's just he, he hates okay, Fred Flintstone so fucking much. I appreciate much. that. <laughs> it's great. 
during this scene, Fred also kind of accidentally signs all of his friend's pink slips because he is tasked with firing the entire workforce. Yeah, and he's like, I'm going to give them a vacation. A nice, long vacation. So the next night, Fred takes Wilma out to Cavern on the Green, which is a very fancy uh, a fancy restaurant and also a very weird reference because <laughs> Tavern on the Green is a real is, restaurant. Yes, is that something that like the kids know? Oh yeah, I guess that probably got like a couple chuckles from the parents in the audience. Oh yeah, the like the New York City parents, maybe. Yeah, that's a very it's a hyper specific, hyper localized reference. Mm, it's it's the 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 number two kids restaurant right behind Mc, right behind Rock Donald's. Oh. <laughs> but at Cavern on the Green, a Barney is now working there as busboy. B the B fifty twos are performing live. Yes, and they're performing Bedrock Twitch. Yes, which you uh, earlier, which is apparently the biggest song in Bedrock at the time because they're singing it on the radio. They're singing it on the radio, and then it's we get this weird, huge musical number where everyone's dancing to it. And because Fred, it was the '90s, and this is what we had. This is comparable to the scene in The Mask, yeah, where Royal Crown Review plays Hey Pachuco, and Jim Carrey dances to it. That's true. You this thought, is what we did in the nineties. You thought it was weird hearing John Goodman sing in true stories. Wait till you see him dance in the Flintstones. It's um Yeah. It's a hoot. Yeah. He's not as good a dancer as uh as Jim Carrey. No. Or as Elizabeth Perkins, who we I haven't mentioned yet, is the one playing Wilma. Oh yeah, we basically forgot Wilma existed. I will give uh the two of them credit elizabeth perkins and rosie o'donnell they nail wilma and betty's little titter laughs yes absolutely nail it it's, knock it out of the park like that's that's apparently what got them both the job was like that they could do the laugh <laughs> oh it's true fred's no albert einstein but you never know he may surprise you well maybe he has been studying day and night oh i know i've never seen him so excited about something that you couldn't spread mayonnaise on <laughs> and they do it a lot too yeah they make like a big show of it and mm-hmm. after a while you're like <laughs> so yeah uh barney and fred come to blows uh over fred being a huge big shot and barney basically being a, a you know second class citizen now and then it comes out that fred has a fired all of his co-workers and b apparently embezzled a lot of money Yes, but not before Wilma trashes their place and goes to her mother's when Betty and Barney move out. Yes. And so Fred has to go on the run when it's revealed that he's embezzled money. And he he wanders past a TV playing Bedrock's Most Wanted, hosted by Jay Leno. Yes. They, they give a reenactment of him embezzling, and it's very corny and very silly. Mr. Flintstone! What are you doing? I'm an executive. I'm embezzling. I'm shocked. <laughs> and actually, I think someone, um, someone kind of famous plays him in the. Oh shit! Who is it? Uh, so the Fred reenactor is played by an actor named Alan Blumenfeld, but the Cliff Vandercave reenactor is played by Sam Raimi, <laughs> which I didn't even recognize him. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Why is it Sam Raimi? <laughs> Why not? But in this scene, the song punctuating this scene is, for some reason, 
uh, Hit and Run Holiday by our old friends, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Yes, who would be seen on The Crow a week later. <laughs> yes, exactly. And also from Cool World back in 1992. So this is their, their, their third appearance on the OST party. Yes. If you had said, guess what band is on the Flintstone soundtrack? Never in a million years would I have guessed My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. One, because they are called My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. <laughs> this is a children's movie where a CGI dinosaur slobbers on John Goodman. <laughs> Again, the name of the band is My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult. Let's go to a clip. Spelled their name with a K before Mortal Kombat. <laughs> they did it before it was cool. I really like this one. This one surprised me. I loved this. This had to be my favorite track on the album. I absolutely loved this. Um, it's a much cleaner horn sound than like Sex on Wheels mm -hmm. or Her Sassy Kiss. I would not have believed that this was My Life with the Thrill Kill Call. It's groovy, it's slick, and it's got these big exotica vibes in keeping with that lounge revival. Yeah. But very specifically, 1960s exotica. Mm -hmm. Like, what an incredible find this was. Yeah, and this apparently comes from uh, an, the album of the same name, which wouldn't come out for in a whole, a whole other year. So really? this is a this is apparently like the first time anyone heard this song from Life with the My Life with the Thill Kill Cult. It premiered on the Flintstones soundtrack. Amazing. Again, wouldn't have guessed. Never would have guessed. That's the thing that we're, we're we're noticing here is like some of these songs they premiere on the Flintstones soundtrack, and then other songs had just been released on other albums. So mm -hmm. it's a very timely album to come out it really is and so like like you were saying earlier they um were very smart with curating the songs they chose but also like how how did they how, how they had the foresight to like pick this song because they knew the album was coming out mm -hmm. that's amazing yeah it's it really is the best song on the soundtrack so really pick up hit and run holiday it's great i don't quite get i mean i guess because it alludes to crime, but right. I, this would not have been one that I would have necessarily picked for this, but I like it. Yeah. I'm and not going to argue. It's it's absolutely buried in the film. Like, I had to really pay attention, like, mm -hmm. a, to make a second pass through to find it, and I found yeah. it. And it's just a very, very short clip. Yeah. Yeah. But it's in there, and that's, that's kind of the, the most amazing thing about this soundtrack. Yes. <laughs> yes, it really is. It's great. And we love it. It turns out we love My Life at the Thrill Kill Cult. They might be one of our favorite bands here at the OST party. Yeah. Who who would have ever guessed? Yeah, because they were a standout on The Crow. They were a standout on um, Cool World. Yeah. They were having a, a moment, but in w ways you wouldn't quite expect. Oh, yeah. This soundtrack, I guess, introduced kids to My Life at the Thrill Kill Cult and the B-52s and... Exotica and industrial and uh, the lounge revival and just everything cool. Yes, and but 
again, I just, I really do want to know who this was for. Because a lot of these things do not go together. But hey, you know, I wasn't doing a ton of cocaine in the early 90s because I was 11 when this film came out. Yeah, and I was I wasn't Drew Barrymore. (laughs) That's the last song featured in the film until the end credits. So yes, the last half hour of this film is, is your typical movie shenanigans. I don't even know how to go through it. Just Fred saves the day by destroying the factory. Yeah, Chekhov's Dick to Bird comes back into play and spills the whole thing. Uh, Kyle McLaughlin kidnaps Pebbles and Bam Bam, and then Fred and Barney save the day and are friends again and invent concrete. In the list of, of movies where Kyle McLaughlin attempts to murder a child, never would have guessed the Flintstones movie. Yeah. <laughs> why not? Who knew? Why not? This movie's already weird enough. Like, it's, yeah, why it's not? already big and dumb enough. And whatever. But the other thing I want to note is the scene before all that where the, the, the lynch mom is about to string up Fred and Barney. Or rather, just Fred at first. Mm-hmm. Barney rolls up in an ice cream truck playing the Jetsons theme. I did not notice that. That actually depresses me. That's a pretty good joke. I guess. It's- and of course, there's the, the theory that uh, the Flintstones and the Jetsons take place in the same timeline. Is it also that the Flintstones takes place after the Jetsons? Like the Flintstones is some kind of post-apocalyptic BS whatever, which is why we have crap like uh, prehistoric McDonald's and shit. No, I think it's that um, like some people are evolved and live up in the clouds, and some oh. people haven't. Okay. And I remember things like, like, I know I watched the Jetsons, and I know I watched the Flintstones, and I could not tell you anything about any of them. All I could tell you is I know there's a movie called The Flintstones Meet the Jetsons where the Jetsons definitely travel through time. Hmm. So that theory, I don't know. Don't know that I care for it. Yeah. Fred saves the day, destroys the the assembly line. Cliff gets encased in concrete, which in, immediately uh, makes Mr. Slate have a brilliant idea. And he offers to make Fred, like, you know, a vice president of the company, which... He could have insisted that he would take the job only on the condition that Barney become his partner, but he does not do that because Fred's an idiot. Yeah, I was I was waiting for it, and then he didn't. I'm like, this movie is dumb. And then he's just going to... Do you think it, um, being in a quarry is a union job? Probably. So, cause, well, because it doesn't seem like... I mean, it doesn't seem like very good union because they don't get like vacation time or... Well, and, and that was that was like what Fred was trying to get in the first place was he wanted to get all these benefits for his quarry buddies. Yeah, so maybe they don't have a good union. Probably not. So a- after the events of this film, Fred probably creates the the quarrymen's union. Yeah, well, I hope so. You know, Rich- Richard Mull's cave isn't going to pay for itself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the day is saved and everything is back to normal because this is a sitcom, and. Over the end credits, we get four, count them, four whole songs. Yes. Uh, the first, of course, is Meet the Flintstones, because you have to do that. You have to do Again. that at the end of the Flintstones. Ofs. The second song in the end credits, though, is Us Three, featuring Def Jeff, performing I Showed a Caveman How to Rock. Yes. Let's go to a clip. Friends took me home to meet the fan, white girl, my daughter Pebbles on 
me Barney, his wife Betty, they son Bam Bam. Told me have a seat, sit and eat and talk. They fix Brontosaurus burgers, but I don't eat pork. Then we dipped in the car, bounced up the street, took off my shoes and gave them to him, cause driving gotta be murder on your feet. Barney said he knew about a party being thrown by Joe. Do you remember these guys? Yeah, I do. Where have we heard us three before? We heard them on the Super Mario Brothers soundtrack doing Cantaloupe Flip Fantasia. That's right, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome back. This has a lot more to do with, with Super Mario Brothers than I would have guessed. Yeah. Now, this it's, song, it's a song in which Def Jeff raps about how he went to Bedrock and taught Fred Flintstone how to be cool. And that's yes. about it. Um, I want to like it, but it's too goofy. It does, however, sample the Flintstones theme. See, which I, I, they incorporate it in kind of a cool way. They, see, that's I kind of like it for that reason. It's I think it's just goofy enough for me to work. It's I guess it's right up there with the Adams Family rap that MC Hammer does. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. along that same that same style, and just as hip hop became more and more mainstream, and we had this intersection of mid-century cartoons there was this moment and you saw it particularly with warner brothers where i'm um, where you'd see like bugs and daffy in urban streetwear oh and i, I know, feel like yeah. this is part of that um and i actually i went down like the rabbit hole of how that trend came to be and it was actually started by a group called the Mighty Shirt Kings, who set up shop in Jamaica, Queens' Coliseum Mall and would add these sort of urban flourishes to uh, cartoon characters. And I'm sure that I've seen Fred and Barney, like with gold chains and, and everything. Um, and this comes from the article, Lord Forgive Us, The Life of Urban Looney Tunes by Brian Jones in GQ, July 18th, 2018. So I want to cite my sources. That'll be in our show notes. Oh, nice. Yeah. It. But... I remember all that, and I feel like this song really plays to that. This, you know, trying to catch uh, the hip hop, what I think they thought was a trend mm-hmm. at the time, um, and trying to to cash in on that market. Yeah, and this is this really is kind of the one kind of hip hop song on the album, and mm-hmm. it it feels. It feels like a novelty even among the rest of the album for that. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't. There, there probably should have been another you know, one or two more songs like this. But, you know, um, I kind of appreciate this one. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen it, I think, more prominent in the film. Mm-hmm. Because it has so much to do with Fred Flintstone. And it's not just, oh, it's a, like loosely about being a caveman or anything like that. Uh, so I would have liked to have seen it get as much play as the B-52s. Yeah. Like, this could have been the song in the montage where the Flintstones start spending money and becoming rich, bougie snobs. Because mm-hmm. those cavemen are learning how to rock, as it were. Agreed. Agreed. So they, it could have worked. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, so th- this one, Prehistoric Days, uh, is the next song in the credits this is by shakespeare's sister and the holy ghost let's go to a clip
Flintstones themed reggae. Yep. It is also a song that is extremely horny for Fred Flintstone. Yes. And now, do you know who Shakespeare's sister is? I do not. It is uh, Siobhan Fahey from Bananarama and her husband, Dave Stewart, from The Eurythmics. Amazing. Yes. I love that. <laughs> um, which probably also explains why they give a shout out to Ha T-Rex. Mm, yep. The second verse, however, is uh, horny for Barney, which I can't say I blame her, because obviously, as we've said, Rick Moranis, zaddy. Um, this, I, I really hated this one. It, yeah, it kind of went in one ear and out the other. It was me. just, I found it, I found the production really messy. Um, and it's really hard to take a song that is as horny as this song, seriously, when they're saying Yabba Dabba Do. Yes, I had that exact thought. It's just, I mean, it's trying really, really hard to say, I want to fuck these dudes. Mm -hmm. But then they're like, yabba dabba do. And it's like, absolutely the fuck not. Yeah, like, it's a perfectly fine, like, faux reggae song from British people until they start saying yabba dabba do. Yeah. It's also endless. Mm -hmm. This song was a thousand hours long. Yeah, not, not a fave here. No. Oh, my God. No. Absolutely not. And I hate to break it to you, but the worst is yet to come. Because the, ne the next and last song on the soundtrack in the film is Green Jelly is back, everybody, performing <laughs> the most inexplicable thing I've ever heard, a cover of the Sex Pistols' Anarchy in the UK. Called Anarchy in Bedrock. Yes. Okay, just play some. Play. Okay. You, you all have to hear this. I am specifically like make fun of the bedrock twitch which is in the movie but this single was released in 93 a year before the movie came out so how the hell did they do that they were like the jetsons and traveled through time <laughs> apparently i don't understand this, it i've and I, I talked about this on dumb and dumber where we previously had um green jelly covering the bear one over the mountain um i don't understand is it just that like you are a sad Gen Xer who maybe had kids too early and you're just trying to hang on to like that last bit of cool while listening to punk records while ignoring your crying child. I don't know. But this song is inexplicable. Like, when did you think taking the Sex Pistols Anarchy in the UK, one of, you know, one of the foundational songs of punk rock, whether you agree that the Sex Pistols are a good punk band or not, it's it's in there. And then mixing it with the Flintstones, but a full year before the Flintstones movie came out, like what what on earth were you smoking? Yeah, and that's the most inexplicable part to me. Like they did this like of their own accord, as far as yes. I can tell. Yes. And why? I, I just I have to ask why. But and that, and that's the thing. Like I, at this point, like the Flintstones, I guess had just become that thing where it was fun and cool and kitschy to like reference the Flintstones for no reason. I do not know. I, don't I honestly know. don't know. Because, I don't know because you know, as you can see through the rest of this album, they're not the only ones. 
who have done this. No. But why this way? Why with this yes. song? Yes. Why not just write a song about the Flintstones? Like, what what made you think I'm going to take Anarchy in the UK and make it about, about the Flintstones? About Bedrock. <laughs> like, How did that come? You know what? Guys from Green Jelly, you owe me an explanation. God damn it. Mm-hmm. Find me on Twitter at Libby Cudmore. And like, and I'm fucking tell me what's going on with your shit. I'm not even going to defend this one because like, yeah, it doesn't make it a lick of sense. But also no. I, at this point in my life, I'm confident in saying every version of Anarchy in the UK is the worst version of Anarchy in the UK. Yeah, it's not that it's one of those that's like it's very edgy when you're a teenager and then you're an adult. And you're like, this is stupid. Yeah, this is a stupid song. <laughs> like, the Sex Pistols are dumb. And that's the song that ends the film. Like, if you're watching the end credits, this is the last thing you hear. Yes. And you're walking into the theater like, what was that? Yeah. You've already just sat through the weirdest, most mind-numbing, bizarre film of your life. <laughs> it's uh, Honestly, it's like David Lynch for children. It's, it's an attack. It is a direct attack on you, the viewer. <laughs> Baby, baby's first eraser head. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe not that bad. Eraser head, except the baby is just Bam Bam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but we actually still have a couple of songs on the soundtrack. Yeah, because th- that's not everything here. And a couple of the songs that are missing are some real big ones from real heavy hitters. Yes. Libby, uh, I've talked enough about the film. Take it away. All right. Well, uh, the song that stood out the most for me is our friends, the Crash Test Dummies, again, from the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack, uh, with their song In the Days of the Caveman from their 1993 album, God Shuffled His Feet. Let's go to It'll be two weeks by the time you guys are hearing this, but I actually played the Crash Test Dummies, God Shuffled His Feet, on Record Saturday. And I think while I was playing, I was like, haha, this should be in the Flintstones. So, you know, I've got cavemen on the brain. I've got to watch the Flintstones and listen to the soundtrack. And then sure enough, I pulled up the soundtrack and there is um, in the Days of the Caveman. And one of the things I love about that album that I'm just starting to appreciate as an adult is how brainy it is. And it's very David Byrne influenced lyrically. This is, if David Byrne wrote a song about cavemen, this is about what it would sound like. Or even Jonathan Richmond, I think. That's funny that you say that, because like one of my notes was like, this this sounds like a weird prequel to Talking Heads, Nothing But Flowers. Yes. Or at least a sequel. Like a, a, a spiritual sequel. Um, but you know who produced Got Shuffled His Feet? Who's that? Jerry Harrison of the Talking Heads. Of course he did. Yes. That makes sense. And it's got this very, like, light, elegant XTC orchestration. And mm-hmm. we know that XTC was a huge influence on the Crash Test Dummies because they covered Ballad of Peter Pumpkinhead right. for the Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. It's it's just got this really, really blissful sound, and that chorus is an absolute treat. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because this used to be one I would skip over because it, it takes a few minutes to get going. It does, uh, but, but once it gets going, it, there's 
really nothing to compare it to on, on yeah the once it hits that chorus it's just absolutely luscious so um really god shuffled his feet is a is an album worth picking up it's it has aged remarkably well although mm, still kind of a dumb song i mean yeah it's a it's like profound as far as the soundtrack is concerned it sticks out like yes. a sore thumb yeah yeah yes it does but other than that like yeah you're not wrong <laughs> but yeah i really like this one too and as i was listening to the soundtrack and i got to this one i i just had to stop and go oh my god it's finally a song that sounds like a song yes because so much of the things on the soundtrack are just like droning nonsense about cavemen and, and rock puns and all of a sudden here's this very thoughtful song it was a breath of fresh air i'm gonna be honest it really was this like uh, the this album though really is the kind of thing you could play are with your kids because it's like kid friendly but adult sounding this is like a, a soundtrack you would play at like a kid's halloween party yeah it's whimsical <laughs> so as long as you cut it off before anarchy in the uk which uh that's gonna haunt me forever. <laughs> I, I both love that I introduced you to that, and I also hate it immensely. I hate you, and I'm gonna request it at your wedding. Or you know what? We're gonna go to a bar with one of those touch tune machines, and I'm just gonna load it up with green jelly, and then get in the car and drive off and leave you there. You'll be too busy playing pinball, and then you'll be like, "Wait a second, it's green jelly." Everything you've said is exa- absolutely true, uh, except for the fact this... that I don't like driving, so I would never do that. <laughs> Like, I'm going to load this up. Can you give me a ride back to my hotel and then come back and listen to all of this? Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Just, let's, let's stop talking about the ways you're going to ruin my life <laughs> and talk about how I'm now actively ruining your, ruining your life. There's also there's one other that I really like. And this is uh, I Want to Be a Flintstone by the Screaming Blue Messiahs. Twilight Zone, a little baby Flintstone all on my own. I wander around in the Twilight Zone, a little baby Flintstone all on my own. Betty and Bonnie are the folks next door. I crawl around all over the floor. This is another one that was not written for the movie. It's from their 1988 album, Bikini Red, which I just bought today. Oh, wow. And really? it has a little sticker that says, featuring the hit, I Want to Be a Flintstone. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's a very posh piece of post-punk. And it's got a little bit of that clash sound with some ro- with like rockabilly elements from, like say, like the Breeders. I was going to say, yeah, there's a very kind of like Pixies kind of quality to this song. Mm -hmm. And like Bill Carter's vocals are like, he's got a little bit of that, like Paul Westerberg, like working class roots Mm -hmm. in there. So this one I actually ended up really liking. This is another one that I obviously I took away from it because I went out and bought the album. I was really surprised when I found it um, at Off Center Records. I was like, I'm going to buy that. And I actually bought another one of their albums. Mm -hmm. So Gunshine. And the music video is fun too because it's it's like the band playing in front of like a, a a space sort of landscape, and then they keep cutting to like clips of the Flintstones dancing to the song, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just a great little like kitschy piece of like Americana, I guess, because like eighties and nineties uh, kitsch culture, like this album is like big on that. Yeah, and yeah. it would kind of have to be because this is it's, this is almost it's kitsch almost to the point of 
cruelty where it's like you're gonna watch this because you're fucking stuck in your childhood you dumb gen x pieces of shit right go buy the fucking happy meal it's just like it's it's almost cruel like it goes back to what i was saying earlier like this album is like a perfect like a side and b side where the a side is is just here are songs that we we either got or produced for the film and the b-side is here are like extant songs already made about the flintstones so it's it's kind of a, a time capsule in that yeah sense. and that there were this many of them yeah, exactly weird it's like a flintstones museum yes <laughs> all right joe bring us home all right so the one song we have yet to talk about the one that i think some of y'all have been waiting for us to talk about it's at the very end of the album Bedrock Anthem by Weird Al Yankovic. I'm kind of amazed they didn't put it in the movie. Let's just go ahead and listen to it. Because this one is actually made seven months before the movie. Because Weird Al had heard they were making a Flintstones movie. So he thought, I'm going to be relevant. And then they only met him kind of halfway on that one. They put it on the album, didn't feature it in the film. Yes. It's a send up of the Red Hot Chili Peppers mashing up under the bridge with Give It Away. Yep. Yep. Our Our friends, the Red Hot Chili Peppers from the Beavis and Butthead to America soundtrack. And our, our friend Weird Al Yankovic from our episode on UHF. Yes, match made in heaven, except that it wasn't because the band was reportedly unimpressed, and so was I. Yeah, they're not wrong. It's not great. It's not one of his better ones. I'm sorry. You know how I feel about Weird Al, but this one is, it's too much. But he was also buying into, again, that, like, that Flintstones nostalgia that we just had. I don't know where it came from or or how we got into it, but we just culturally had a nostalgia for the Flintstones in the early 90s. Yeah. Inexplicably. And I, I want to say a big part of that was like in the, in what, 92, I think, was when Cartoon Network came out, but premiered. And at that time, like early Cartoon Network, all they had were like old uh, Hanna-Barbera cartoons and Warner Brothers cartoons. So I'm sure, if the, I'm sure the Flintstones got a lot of play all of a sudden. And yes, people but, were seeing it for the first time in ages. Yeah. And I guess the marketing with Fruity Pebbles and with the vitamins... Yeah, I right. think you and I are both probably Flintstones kids. Oh, I know yeah. I was. Me, absolutely. I've never eaten Fruity Pebbles, though. I, because <laughs> I'm a terrible person, we found the other day a bottle of, like, coffee creamer that was Fruity Pebbles flavored. And I t- took one sip in my coffee and, like, no, the rest of this is going in the trash because it was awful. Yeah, I can't imagine Fruity Coffee would be good. No, but it was just, like, it was, like, purple sugar i guess oh, gross oh, it was. i'm Ugh. actually gonna gag Ugh. not great no oh god if you, if you see it on the shelf just leave it folks oh god everyone is bad but yeah everyone uh, is going to jail but yeah you're, yeah you're right like like weird al was obviously like trying to cash in on like the the big flintstones craze that apparently was sweeping the nation in the <laughs> early 90s i'll say this for weird al the video is better than the song because he yeah, is the- it's a pretty solid like parody video of give it away yes but um, obviously, when it comes to Alapalooza, Jurassic Park is the better song. Oh, 100%, yes. So I think he was, I think he caught on that more. 
as far as the cultural phenomenons of the time. Yeah, he realized that was that was the the hot ticket. Yeah, that's where his money was. Yeah. So. But, you know, good on them for at least sticking it on the end of the soundtrack. Yes, I, that was a nice favor. Yeah, and I, I mean, if 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 you're already in the business of collecting Flintstone songs, why not, right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure that helped move a lot of CDs too. Yeah, because people would have picked it up for that. Mm-hmm. So, and the B52s track, which obviously was the breakout single, somehow. Uh, apparently, yes. But I, you know, when we talk about the importance of soundtracks, like what a cool way to get into the Screaming Blue Messiahs. Yeah, really. Or the My Life with the Thrill Kill Call. And how weird that's going to be when you explain to your child, oh, that song is by a band called My Life with the Thrill Kill Called. They have another song. It's called Sex on Wheels. <laughs> it's from that cartoon movie that you're not allowed to watch. It'll make sense when you're The one that's not Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right, right. <laughs> no way. So again, like, I think it just comes back to, like, this is not really for children, is it? But it's not for adults. It's not, not it's not for children, but it's not not for children. Yeah. It's not I, explicitly an adult thing because the Flintstones is very childish and very silly, but that's kind of the charm too. Is it for stoners maybe? Are stoners watching the Flintstones? I bet it's for stoners. Uh, it probably. Get maybe. it? Get it? Get it? I made a rock pun. <laughs> wow, I did that it. Took, this movie That is took me a minute and all I can say is it's late and I'm tired. <laughs> You got one on me, and I appreciate it. I'm happy. My husband made a uh, rim shot in the background. I don't know if if the mic picked it up. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Before we go, I just want to briefly shout out the last track on the album. It's called Mesozoic Music by composer David Newman. It's the the film score, briefly. Mm -hmm. But also, David Newman is another one of those artists that we've definitely covered before because he also did the soundtracks to the Bill and Ted movies and Tommy Boy and Jingle All the Way. He does that big sweep that I like in uh, Tommy Boy. Yeah, that yeah. Big orchestral sweep. Oh, I love it. So he's he's no stranger to the OST party. Yes, welcome back. Sorry, it had to be this way. But uh, yeah, so that's that's the Flintstone soundtrack, everybody. Libby, what 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 uh, what do you make of this? I'm glad I listened to it. I am very sorry I had to revisit the film. I don't think I would own this on vinyl, but it has made me want to pick up a couple albums by some of the uh, the artists on the soundtrack. Joe, what about you? I'm definitely glad I bought the soundtrack and not the film itself because I really don't need to see this movie ever again. Ever again. Um, I will say that this soundtrack has firmly solidified my hatred of Green Jelly. <laughs> I hate them so much. I'm going to find another album with Green Jelly I, on it. I know. They are the smash mouth of the early 90s. They really are. I hate them oh, so much. Boy. I'm going to find a I way. I know you are, because you're a bad person with an ugly heart. Mm-hmm. All right. So <laughs> what are we doing next week? Well, next time on the OST Party, it's one of our On the Fives episodes. Yay. And we are getting into the Muppets. We're going to yes. talk about some Muppets songs. We're going to start the music. We're going to light the lights. That's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of ground to cover there, but I think we can do it. I think in 10 songs we can we can cover it. Oh boy. That's going to be a lot of homework, but I can't wait. Oh, it's it's going to be great. Yeah. I'm excited. I already so, know a couple of mine. But yeah, it, it it this is that that one is going to make me so happy. <laughs> it will make all everybody happy. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Libby, where can our listeners find you on the internet? You can find me over at Twitter at LibbyCudmore.com. You can find me on Instagram at record underscore Saturday, or you can find me on the Shattered Shield podcast. Joe, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter as well. I'm at Cordial Wombat and the same on Instagram. And also you can find me on the Christmas Creeps podcast where we yell about Christmas movies all year round um, at Christmas Creeps on Twitter. I don't have anything to plug for that one. And we still kind of TBD, but uh, rest assured, it's going to be weird. Oh, boy. Does Green <laughs> Jelly have a Christmas album? Uh, we'll find out. We're going to find <laughs> out. And I'm going to invite you on that episode. I know you will. <laughs> <laughs> So, for the OST party, I'm Joseph Wade. And I'm Libby Cudmore. Yabba dabba. Dabba do. A dabba do time. We'll have a dabba do time.